Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The Ukraine just elected a comedian as its president. A reality TV character holds the most powerful office on the planet. Talk show hosts are driving the agenda of U.S. policy, and not a day goes by that we don't hear talk about more celebrities running for office. The membrane that separates news, governance, and entertainment has all but disappeared, and the effort to raise any policy conversation above the noise drives our celebrity culture. The debate about whether this is good or bad for our democratic system and whether a democratic system is really what the founders intended are all questions we should be debating today. Do we have to change our culture or change our system to reflect the reality of the 21st century? Today, we're going to talk about this with my guests, Nancy Eisenberg and Andrew Burstein. Nancy Eisenberg is the T. Harry Williams Professor of American History at Louisiana State University and the author of the New York Times bestseller, White Trash. Andrew Burstein is the Charles P. Manship Professor of History, also at Louisiana State University. He's a noted Jefferson scholar and the author of 10 previous books on early American politics and culture. It is my pleasure to welcome Nancy Eisenberg and Andrew Burstein to the program to talk about their newest work, The Problem of Democracy. The President's Adams Confront the Cult of Personality. Nancy, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Thanks for having us. Well, it's great to have you both here. Andrew, let me start with you. And whether or not our founders really intended the kind of democracy that we think we have today. Well, first of all, the word democracy was not used in the way that we use it. Um, Democracy was associated either with ancient Athens and the polis, uh, where a small number of people gathered, in a sense, like the town meeting that the Adamses, uh, that late John Adams uh, attended when uh, he was a young lawyer. Um, then, uh, especially at the time of the French Revolution, democracy was looked upon as mobocracy or anarchy. So to be uh, called a Democrat um, was uh, anathema. It was not a positive uh, value until uh, after 1800, and uh, at that point, gradually, um, America became comfortable uh, with uh, being called a Democrat. Um, speaking of democracy in in the way we understand it uh, in in the modern world, um, what the Adamses contributed, uh, in short, uh, was um, a recognition that. Uh, Within all kinds of governments, there were built-in potential problems. That tyranny of the few, um, known as oligarchy or moneyed aristocracy, um, kept people docile. That tyranny of the many, mobocracy, uh, kept people confused. So you have, in either case, the cult of personality pervasive because it's a servile regard for celebrity, the fantasy of connecting with a king, uh, identifying with a celebrity figure. Um, And so the Adamses were concerned with human psychology. They were concerned with the tendencies uh, within, embedded even with democracy, um, for it to be corrupted. And what they couldn't have imagined, Nancy, is is those problems compounded by the reality of social media and entertainment and 24-7 news cycles in the 21st century. 
No, it's it's quite striking because I mean when John Adams saw the role of celebrity, particularly the way in which the French aristocracy and literati turned Benjamin Franklin into the first American rock star, he he highlighted how any political figure had to be his own trumpeter, you know, build statues, have paintings done. And think about how that's amplified by the internet or Television. I mean, even television, uh, which, of course, you know, Eisenhower was the first president to have televised spots. Uh, it's actually Richard Nixon who was the first to anticipate reality TV with his scripted town meetings. So you're exactly right. Um, and in fact, John Adams had a critique of what we would see in the Internet. He, he was saying that if it wasn't birth, riches, and beauty, what the aristocracy used to maintain power through their glamorous performances, it would be lies, flattery, and quackery. Um, and we know what the Internet has. It, the, the Internet is filled with conspiracy theories. It can be filled with lies. It can be filled with gossip. And there's no filter. There's no standard for truth. Um, so, yes, the, the problems have, have, have increased. Um, and I think they would be shocked by if, if they were you know, transported here to see our, our current world. But I think they, they still offer important insights about how behind the screen of democracy, because everyone says we have a democracy, when in 2016, only 58% of the population voted. Um, and the problem is that behind the scenes, we do have powerful oligarchies that can be pulling the strings. And this is where they anticipated that they critiqued the dangers of parties, parties that were not even conceived of in drafting the Constitution. They were really concerned about moneyed interest uh, passing legislation that served the interest of a small uh, elite. Uh, they were concerned with uh, the power uh, and privilege of, you know, within uh, the party uh, organization um, that that it would not represent uh, the the will of the people, the common good. And that's what the founding generation, the the framers of the Constitution, were concerned about. No one so so much as John Adams. Um, you know, just to, to add on to what Nancy was saying about the internet as as democratic space, what the Adamses felt most strongly about was educated opinion. How that a democracy, a representative democracy, succeeds when uh, it features educated opinion, so an informed electorate able to see misinformation for what it is. They pegged the problems that we're looking at right now. They saw them back in the day as the pathological uh, viruses embedded in even a modern republic, America being the first modern republic. There, there was a lot to be hopeful for, but also a lot uh, to be concerned about. And we can see the evolution of it. You know, we talk about it with respect to the Internet today, but we can see the evolution through yellow journalism and even through the early days of radio, which was, I suppose, the original social media and, and, and how it has gotten worse at every step of the way. Yeah, radio was initially introduced to advertise goods, and the entertainment and the news came second. Um, and, and yes, this is a problem. Even the newspapers, if you go back to the 1790s, right. the newspapers are highly partisan. Uh, they, can, they could say anything. There was no even rule for two sources. Um, they were highly politicized and biased. 
So yes, the, the, the problem has long roots. But I, I want to say something positive. One of the things that John Adams defended, and he felt is where democracy needs to be grounded was in the town meeting, the New England town meeting. And we've lost this today because you can't have a virtual town meeting on the Internet. You actually have to have people face-to-face learning how to, to articulate their their interests, articulate their views, and they have to be in a room where they have to actually contend with the opposition face-to-face. So he celebrated the town meeting and his son celebrated the right of petition, that petitions that would reflect average people and all people. He believed women should have the same right to petition. He believed that slaves should have the right to petition. And we've lost that as well. I mean, online petitions are not the same. They're, they don't function in the same way that if we looked at how petitions were used, particularly mobilizing against slavery, the anti-slavery petitions in the 1830s and 1840s. And of course, even the right to petition has been perverted by money as you were talking right. about before, with respect to, you know, look at California with the initiative process here and what the right to petition has produced. Right. No, you're exactly right. That's the problem. And that's the one thing about the early republic. They all, they all were deeply afraid of oligarchies, which were about vested interests in a powerful elite. John Adams often compared them to old world family dynasties. And if you think about money and the the influence that money can have it, it that that again we can see is a new phenomenon but they could see how powerful elites in a sense could mobilize their influence um and and have more sway than the public could ever have the system they created was certainly a system that that dealt with these issues at the time when we look at how they have held up or not held up today, do we need to be really thinking about how we reframe the entire system? Andrew? Well, that's a big question. Um, if we start with the Electoral College, um, they uh, conceived of it as a means of um, uh, re- distancing uh, ordinary people from uh, from from the center of power, uh, there was a distrust. I mean, this was a country in which you had very few people uh, attending college. Uh, literacy was high, um, but political literacy um, was not. And so there was this awareness uh, that that the only people who should be given the vote were those who were property holders. Uh, the universal white male vote didn't come in until really the 1820s and 1830s in full force. So the Electoral College, um, the, the election of the president by members of the state, leg- those electors appointed by the state legislatures, um, was a, a way of, of separating uh, the ordinary voter from uh, electing the highest uh, official, uh, chief magistrate, as they called the president at that time. Um, uh, What should probably happen, um, uh, given the complexity of our politics today, is that rather than the general ticket plurality system, uh, where all of the votes of a state go to one candidate, so whoever wins California gets all 54, is it? I forget how many it is, uh, electoral votes. Uh, James Madison anticipated uh, and wrote this toward the end of his life uh, that 
the way democracy would evolve would be uh, that the electoral college, uh, electoral votes would remain uh, in force, uh, but that it would be congressional district by congressional district. So California's 50-some-odd electoral votes wouldn't all go to one candidate. They would be divvied up according to who won uh, the vote in that uh, each congressional district, that this is closer to um, popular democracy. And as early as the early 1790s, uh, there were congressmen who were uh, pushing for the direct popular vote. Um, so these ideas have been with us for a long time. Um, the electoral college, the, the electoral system we have right now probably should be updated. And the electoral college system, as you know, is corrupt because it was also designed to protect uh, the slaveholding states, that the slaves were counted in determining the number of electoral votes. So that legacy is also built in to the electoral college. Um, so, yes, that needs to be changed. And we know the government itself has evolved dramatically in the post-World War II era that we have handed over much more power to the executive branch than was ever anticipated by any of the founders. Um, and that has to do with the politics of the Cold War, uh, the changes that have occurred. But, you know, the system was designed to create more of a balance. And we have, we have in a sense, made the presidency more like an elected monarch um, than even at the time of Washington. Of course, the, the other overlay to all of this is what we've done or what's happened with respect to geography in the Senate, where we're moving towards a time in the very not-too-distant future where essentially 70% of the Senate represents 30% of the country and 30% of the Senate represents 70% of the, of the country. Well, it's it would be very hard. I mean, th think of the, you know the states' jealousies uh, were already present at, at the time of the Constitutional Convention, and that was the reason why it it went on as long as it did and was as contentious as it was. Um, that would surely be a major stumbling block to to getting any sort of agreement today. Yeah, because you know at the time of the Constitutional Convention, it was the big states versus the small states. So there was uh, that's why they wanted to kind of give the smaller states uh, equality in the Senate. Um, and yes, and, and as you know, the Constitution is extremely difficult to add amendments to and to change anything. We've, we've created, in the same way impeachment is such a complicated and difficult process, so is the process of amending or changing the Constitution. One of the major uh difficulties that politicians faced in the first uh, half century or more of our country was uh, what, how the territories were going to be fashioned into states, um, what size would they be. Uh, if, if you think about Texas when it came into the Union, um, the idea that it would, that vast amount of territory would be separated into maybe 10 states and that they would all be slave states. And so, uh, you know, in the build up to the Civil War, it was the free state versus the slave state and how much power would be exercised by that dominant uh, ideology uh, in the Congress of the United States. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, we don't have that 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 very problem today. Um, but, but even during the revolution, the Virginians were so big and powerful, uh, and, and too big for their britches, as some would say, uh, 
And they thought that when uh, 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 Benedict Arnold and Cornwallis invaded Virginia, that uh, the Pennsylvanians would refuse to come to their aid because they thought, you know, Virginia needed to to get a licking, Um, that there wasn't even the the kind of defensive union that we imagined there was uh, during this, this, the spirit of 76, as it were. Come back to the Adams and talk about what they saw, what they feared in terms of this cult of personality, this idea of what we would call today celebrity politics. Well, one of the, you know, John Adams' favorite phrases is that you need a government of laws, not men. And this has been quoted a lot recently. And they really believed that, first of all, no one was immune to fame, that the striving for power, the striving for celebrity is built in to the human psychology. So you can't actually eliminate it. But what you can do is create institutions that can safeguard against it. And that's why they had more faith in rules, principles, fair proceedings, and institutional checks and balances is the only way that you can kind of Uh, protect against the natural impulse for fame, the natural impulse to uh, aggregate power. And John Quincy Adams was also really astute in terms of understanding the importance of a constitutional legacy that not only built on his father's traditions, but he believed in actually celebrating the rights of man and making it part of our constitutional legacy. And that's something that we also have to think about. How do we talk about our rights? How do we talk about our constitutional institutions? They, they are not, have never have been, you know, written in stone. They have evolved over time. And I think that, you know, we often think of the Constitution as something important to the, civil, the recent civil rights movement. But we need to have, I think, a, a larger public discussion as you said, about what is the purpose of our institutions, that we shouldn't just be driven by parties, we shouldn't just be driven by party divisions, but we have to come back to talking about what is it in our government that we need to protect. And that's what I find most disturbing. People who just attack Washington, call it the swamp, think that all government is bad. That's a really very dangerous perspective that was promoted by the Tea Party and has carried way too much weight and has been exploited, I think, to make people just totally anti-government without understanding you can't live in a society without government and law. But, of course, that has been this mantra that we've heard. I mean, it certainly goes back further, but on a consistent basis that we've heard for the past 40 years when, you know, people around Reagan talked about making the government small enough to go down the drain of a bathtub. (laughs) No, you're exactly right. And there's always been an anti-government tendency, even back in the, when Jackson is elected, he's seen as the outsider, believe it or not. He was seen as the person who was going to come in because he didn't have the kind of government expertise as John Quincy Adams and clean out. Uh, There they referred to the... Augean stables. The Augean stables, you know, like, so that, even that rhetoric is not new and original. But you're right, that rhetoric... appeals, unfortunately, to Americans, and it reflects, it even goes back even further, because Socrates and Plato argued that statesmen should be compared to doctors and politicians to chefs, and the the statesmen give people the harsh medicine they need and often don't want to hear, (laughs) and politicians indulge popular appetites, and that's part of the problem. Americans can be... uh, 
contradictory. On the one hand, they, they love politicians who make promises they can't keep. On the other hand, they want to blame politicians for interfering in their lives. And that's, that's also part of human nature, is that we talk about liberty, but liberty doesn't exist unless you have the laws to protect that liberty. But Americans don't think of the Adamses as quotable, uh, you know, like Jefferson um, or Lincoln. But one thing that John Quincy Adams uh, once said, I, I, I think sort of captures the spirit of their um, iconoclasm, um, but also it's a truth about democracy uh, as we've been talking about it. The most that he would say for democracy was that it was oxygen or vital air. And uh, he meant uh, essential for life, but combustible, deadly in combination with other elements. So, you know, they had these, these wonderful metaphorical ways of looking at American democracy. Um, you know, oxygen, you needed to breathe. Uh, what could be better than oxygen? So democracy is oxygen, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's, it's flammable. And uh, they, they are imagined, the President's Adams, as anti-democratic conservatives. But liberal and conservative, those terms don't apply to anyone in the early period of our history. Um, what they did, though is they conceptualize democracy in a manner that made it more than a word that politicians pay lip service to. They, you know, got in like surgeons, uh, to use my own metaphor here, uh, and they understood that, that the, the, the impulsive, that the clannish, vindictive Jackson, um, who didn't read history, who didn't study political thought, who didn't have a policy other than, oh, the banks are trying to kill me, I'm going to kill the banks. Um, there was this sort of uh, Trumpian, uh, you know, Jackson uh, uh, brashness um, that made him popular among those people who, who, who thought that he really represented the common man when actually he was, uh, a, you know, he, he, he had his cronies. And those were the people who got the best land. Those were the people who got, you know, he, he liked people like himself who um, weren't the, the, you know, John Quincy Adams represented uh, a Harvard degree, represented expertise. And Jackson felt that he had this, um, inst not just instant celebrity, that, that hero thing, but he carried himself as one who instinctively understood what was right and nobody could tell him. I know it sounds an awful lot like somebody we've been hearing from lately. But John Quincy Adams, uh, like his father before him, represented somehow, symbolized uh, the overeducated elite that uh, somehow was out of touch with the common, uh, common voter. The, the other thing, though, that I think is different today is that in, in all of this, they were institutionalists. And now we are adding to all of the problems that we have talked about by the fact that people have lost faith in, lost touch with those fundamental institutions that make government work. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, John Adams, he praised the town meeting. He praised schools. He believed that, this, that you know, there should be public funding for schools. Um, and we, we have kind of attacked all of these institutions, as you said. And we, we, you know, 
we can say, well, some people might say the family is the is one institution that needs to be protected. But then we can't even agree on how that's actually going to be accomplished. And this is, this is, this is the nature of democracy, that you have to have deliberation, you have to have debate. But it's, it's the, the, the negative view that any institution is somehow treading on one's individual liberties is a problem. Because, as I've said, everyone of the founding generation knew that liberty required institutional support, that liberty does not exist on its own. If, if, it, if it did, we'd all be, still be in the state of nature, and that's not possible. And the bigger problem is, that, and this is something that John Quincy Adams noted, is that often when we think we have a democracy, as with Jacksonian democracy, that it's shielding where the real power lies. And for him, the power was with Western expansion, the growth of wealthy speculators, and their alliance with Southern slaveholders. Because we forget that Southern slaveholders wanted slavery to expand the Pacific. And who could be least democratic than the increasing power of a slave oligarchy, the planter class? And this is what he, when he went to Congress after being president, he hammered at that point again and again. And that's something that we need to be aware of, that we need to have someone, this is what should be happening on the floor of the House. And rarely do people have any sense of what our Congress congressmen and women are actually saying on the House floor. We don't even pay attention to that. John Quincy Adams, when he became president, uh, delivered his first uh, message to Congress, the, the, what was then, uh, what is today the State of the Union, and announced a program, uh, a sweeping program um, of infrastructural improvements, federal funding of uh, roads and canals and bridges and all of this, and it was shot down immediately because uh, they, the, the Jacksonian opposition didn't want any initiative coming from this president to be, uh, you know, to, to, to see the light of day uh, because partisan politics got in the way of doing what was best for uh, the majority of Americans. Is that an argument, though, that we survive that, that the system survived that? And is that a reason for optimism, given what the situation looks like today? Well, I know some people like to sort of, you know, quote James Madison, you know, our better angels or somehow imagine that if we do, if we've survived all these crises in the past, that that demonstrates the strength of our institutions. That's often the argument made about the election of 1800. And we almost went to war over the election of 1800. So I, I, I think that that's just a fallback that people want to believe that they hope that if we have made it this far, that we can survive. But I think that, again, I think that the, 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 the question here is that we have to really interrogate the past. We have to understand the problems embedded both constitutionally and politically and in our party system and not want to replicate the mistakes we've made in the past and not want to assume just that we've survived, that that means that we will make it through this crisis. I think we have to learn from the mistakes. I think Americans often have a short attention span and they forget things. <laughs> and I think we need a reminder. And that's, that's why we want people to pay attention to John Adams and John Quincy Adams, because they're a voice reminding us, a warning of if we want a democracy, we have to fight and we have to work to defend it. It's critical thinking 
if if critical thinking is voted down um, by brutes and bullies, then uh, and and public education is deemed unimportant relative to tax breaks for so-called job creators. Um, when we have the myths supplant truths, when we have platitudes uh, stand for uh, uh, for who we are, um, feel-good maxims about democracy. The Adamses are. Uh, a reminder, and I think this comes through repeatedly in our book, are a reminder uh, that uh, the, we, we can only confront our problems uh, by being morally courageous, by standing uh, – when we see indoctrination – uh, whether it's you know the political party indoctrinating all of its members to vote a certain way, they stood above party. Um, they were a party of two, and uh, you know Jefferson's optimism was America is the world's best hope, and it sounds beautiful. The Adams's optimism was if we pay attention to uh, those elements in our government uh, in our. Uh, political discourse uh, that feed uh, this celebrity culture. If we don't pay attention, if we abdicate uh, critical thinking in favor of this, uh, you know, worshiping of celebrities, um, then, uh, you know, democracy becomes what they fear, uh, what they saw in history in the past, um, where too much power uh, goes to those who are incapable of critical thinking. That was that was their warning to us. And and the reality is, and as pessimistic as this may sound, that all of those things which the Adams is worried about are essentially happening today. It's almost the perfect storm. There is no moral courage. There is intense partisanship. There is no faith in institutions. Celebrity culture is rampant, etc. No, it's true. I mean, and I think... Um, th in a sense, this is why I think, you know, even when, when John Adams was making his darkest prediction, you know, that democracies can commit suicide, the point that he was trying to say is that you have to resuscitate those principles, that we need to return to the basic principles of understanding the, the good in our Constitution, understanding the way in which institutions have to be respected and defended and not sort of assume that if we just erase everything, that magically uh, our, our freedoms will be, uh, you know, defended around, you know, in this country. And I think that's what I, that's the real problem they allude to, is that it's not, an, rhetoric is empty. It's substance that matters. And substance comes from defending real statesmen, real institutions that really do protect the interests of the common good. Problem solving. That's what they stood for problem-solving. Nancy Eisenberg, Andrew Burstein, their book is The Problem of Democracy. The President's Adams Confront the Cult of Personality. Nancy, Andrew, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was fun for thank us. Thank you. This was a, a nice conversation. Thank you.